the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. Our visit today with Pastor Alistair Begg from Truth For Life. He, of course, is um, heard every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. You can get more information, by the way, about his ministry online at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. Lots of great resources available there. Books published by author by Alistair, as well as information regarding podcasts. Again, that's at truthforlife.org. We're talking about the hand of God, finding his care in all circumstances, published by Moody Press. And I, I think about some of the guys in the Bible. There seems to be a trend here that, that oftentimes if your name begins with J, you're going to be in for a hard time. <laughs> I think of uh, people like uh, Jonah, certainly Jeremiah, Joseph, the son of Jacob, um, whom you yep. specifically focus on inside of this book, The Hand of God, to help us better understand exactly where God's hand is, how it works, and how to discover his care in all circumstances. How did you happen to focus on Joseph? Well, it started as an attempt to preach the story, and um, when I realized just how strong the response was to that, I, um, I then said, well, maybe there is value in putting it down in print. And I haven't done that very often at all, and, but that, that's the genesis of it. The book came after the preaching rather than the other way around. And there must have been a real sense of awakening or quickening to people's spirits in beginning to see, wow, here's a guy whose story is amazing. Here's a guy who, let's face it, went through some really difficult times. I mean, I, I, by the grace of God, I've never had to go through it, but I would imagine being tied up and, and tied down to the back of a camel and being carted back off to Egypt uh, in order to be sold into slavery, probably not a very appealing or a delightful afternoon, but that's certainly is part of Joseph's experience. What do we extrapolate from his life story, uh, Alistair, in order to apply to our own today? Well, you know, again, you know, in the the words of Cowper, the, the, the hymn writer who himself suffered really dark days in his life, he was a friend of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. But, you know, Cowper helped us all when he wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And the, the, the thing about the, the, the picture of planting footsteps in the sea, you know, if when you walk in the sea, you can never see your footsteps. If you walk in the sand, you, can't, you can see them, but not in the sea. And so it's that picture of the mystery of God as well that, that has then to be, uh, has to be uh, dealt with in light of what God has revealed of himself. Uh, that he has revealed himself to be a kind God and a gracious God and a good God and so on. And therefore, when we come up against uh, the bad and the disappointing and the hurtful, we, we shouldn't then say, oh, well, then God is no longer what he has revealed himself to be. 
we should first of all say, well, isn't this a mystery that a, a good God would allow these things in the, in the unfolding story of a life or in the story of our lives? And so I don't understand, and I will trust him, or I don't understand, and I will curse him. Now, if, if you go by, I don't understand, and I will curse him, then there may be an immediate sense of satisfaction uh, in feeling that, there you go, uh, but there is no answer down that road. And the, the only answer is to say, yes, I, there is much about this that I do not understand, but I bow before the mystery of God's purposes, and I will trust him. And I don't see how it's possible to understand the response of Joseph. Uh, you know, his father gives him a coat, dotes on him, takes his brothers off. His brothers can't stand him. They're jealous of him. Uh, they plan to murder him. They decide, Reuben says, no. A Reuben, who was a bad act, who had slept with his father's concubine, now is the compassionate one. Uh, there's a mystery in all of that. Uh, and then, as you say, off he goes, you know. And up on the, up on the block, presumably standing there naked, and, uh, and the people saying, well, I'll bid this much for him, or I'll bid that much for him. And, and suddenly, if you squeeze your eyes together, you say, goodness gracious, this reminds me of somebody else. Who is it? And then you say, well, of course, it's the Lord Jesus himself, stripped naked and hanged upon a cross, despised and rejected by men. And the devil does his best, means it all for evil, and God intends it for good. And, of course, that is exactly the story as it unfolds in the life of this young character. Is it really then incumbent upon us to to take a step back? I mean, you know, in, in the moment of the turmoil or tragedy, it's easy to be overwhelmed and to feel as if God is either capricious or vindictive, maybe a little bit of both, or all of this is just sort of randomness. And yet I wonder, Alistair, if, if it, it really becomes incumbent upon the believer to say, okay, let me as best as I can in my, my finite wisdom— uh, step back here and, and ask, okay, big picture, what's going on? God is still in control, even though in the moment it doesn't seem as if he is or anybody is. No, that's right. And, and this, again, I think, uh, Craig, is where the poetry of the Bible is so wonderfully helpful. I mean, the psalmist gives us not only these great joyful songs of praise, but he gives us lots of laments. I mean, there is much there in the Psalms that is, if you like, provided for us. You know, a little Psalm, like Psalm 13, which begins, How long will you forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long must I have sorrow in my heart? How long must my enemies triumph over me? So he's not having a good day, let's just say that. And he, he, he is confronted by circumstances which cause him to lament. Part of the problem in evangelicalism is that we have no context for lament. If you go to the average service, there is very little time that is given to confession of, of sin. There is very little opportunity that is given for moments of silence. There is very little time that is given over for, if you like, lament. Very few songs are played in a minor key. Everybody wants it to be up. Everybody wants it to be triumphant. And so, in actual fact, when you come into that context, you know, with your feet uh, slightly on fire from the events of the week that has passed, 
and you are looking for the the opportunity for solace and for um, engagement with a God who is far bigger than our ability to comprehend, then goodness gracious, the trivialization of so much of it is enough to uh, to cause a person to make a run, make a run for the back door. I'm reminded of the passage that uh, for now we see through a glass darkly. We know that in Jeremiah sure. twenty nine eleven we're told that God has a plan, and yet sometimes yep. maybe we're frustrated because God has the plan. He just hasn't shared it in its entirety with us, and we're just chomping at the bit. We want to know how does things turn out? What's going to happen here? And, of course, technically, if we've read the Scripture, we really do know the end of the story, don't we? Well, that's right, you know, and that's that's why... That's why we have the end of the story. That the, sto- the story, the story is a story of of triumph ultimately in Jesus. That the, the the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We have no answer for death. The statistics are clear: one out of one dies. Nobody wants to tackle it. Nobody wants to address it. We 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 cover up in flowers in the back of a black limousine, and and uh, and and let it pass by. But the reality is we know we all face that. And, and if, if we do not have an answer to that dilemma, whatever our view of the world is, it is an insufficient view of the world, because that is the one issue that, that confronts every one of us. Whether that is death as a result of a fire that comes through, whether it is death as a result of sleeping away in the night, whatever it is, that's what it is. And the fundamental question that a person should be asking is, if I had gone down in those flames, where would I spend eternity? And a Christianity that speaks always of the now and the time and the immediate benefit is a Christianity that is not the Christianity of the apostolic gospel, which was constantly referring people to the fact that God has appointed a day when he will judge the world, and he's given proof of this by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And every time that the creation creaks and groans in this way, uh, we are given a strong reminder of the fact that these are powers that are vastly beyond us, and either they are powers that exist in a chance universe, we are molecules held in suspension, we were born without reason, we prolong ourselves by chance, we die and go into oblivion, or there is actually a creator God who has loved us even in our rebellion, and has dispatched the second person of the Trinity, even Jesus himself, not simply to shout to us from afar, but to step down into life with us, to bear sin, to bear punishment, to bear hatred, to be the recipient of cruelty, to die an ignominious death, and yet to triumph over it. And that is the hope of the Christian. We sorrow not as those who have no hope, but we still sorrow. And we should sorrow, because so much of life is profoundly sad. The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances. Again, published by Moody Press. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, or you can order it online at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast, Monday through Friday, 7.30 a.m., right here on KFAX. Pastor Alistair Begg. Alistair, as always, thank you so much for the insights. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Oftentimes in America, when we think about the issue of slavery, it's been not only a huge black eye on America's reputation going back into her history, but also a point of pride. Pride in the sense that come the mid to later 1800s, we finally came to the conclusion that slavery was not a good thing. It was something that deservedly needed to be abolished. And while there's many arguments to suggest that we're still sort of recuperating from the impact of multiple generations of slavery in America going back into the 1800s, those that would think that with the abolishment of slavery in America that ended slavery, period, would be sorely and sadly mistaken. In fact, while slavery in the fashion that we're familiar with from a historical viewpoint may not exist in that truest form, other forms of slavery not only abound today, both here in the United States, but even domestically, and it has become a multi-billion dollar industry. As we dive into the sad, murky details of slavery going on and human trafficking, I'll warn you that some segments of our conversation in this portion of Lifeline may not be appropriate for young years. So if you have children about, you may want to busy them elsewhere. As we engage in conversation with a special guest tonight, he has served as an undercover investigator and outlines his experiences inside of a new book called God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. And Daniel Walker, thanks so much for being with us on the program. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a topic that I suppose to, to the average Westerner, the average American, uh, is probably shocked to find out that this even goes on. I mean, to be sure, we know that in big cities all over America, just as they are in, in many parts of the world, there is one level or another of prostitution. But when we get into the topic of sex trafficking and slavery, this is bigger, darker, and more insidious than perhaps most people could even imagine. Yeah, certainly that was the biggest shock for me, uh, not only how easy it was to find uh, all around the world, but the magnitude of it, and uh, that there are more people in slavery in our generation than at any other time in history uh, does boggle the mind. I mean, more people in slavery, as you've said, than, uh, than when slavery was alive in this country, than when William Wilberforce was fighting the transatlantic slave trade. Indeed, more slavery today than when Moses led the slaves out of Egypt uh, all those years ago um, and uh, and the nature of it of course is the only thing that's that's different there aren't people standing on street corners with chains around their ankles they are largely hidden behind closed doors uh, and uh, the fastest growing form of modern day slavery is is uh, the trafficking of, of women and children is this what allows it to flourish the way it has, becoming, as you suggest, Daniel, a multi-billion dollar global industry because so much of it takes place uh, either under the cover of darkness or behind closed doors? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think if uh, well, I'm confident that uh, if people were still being sold on our street corners uh, and uh, the chains were visible around their ankles, uh, we would do something about it. And the church primarily would... Uh, would answer its call to to be the organization, the leading group of people who have a mandate and a mission uh, to set people free from everything that enslaves them, whether that's uh, personal sin or whatever sucks the life out of us, but also literal slavery. But yeah, like you said, we we don't see it. It's uh, it's behind closed doors. It's often behind fronts for other businesses. 
but we need to see it. And I guess that's why I wanted to write this book, so that people would be able to see what I saw during uh, four years uh, behind those doors. Do we need to be clear in articulating for the benefit of the audience, Daniel, that when we talk about sex trafficking, it's not singularly the issue of, of prostitution. Uh, we often think about prostitutes as a woman who, who volunteers it because maybe there's a sense of desperation. She gets pulled into the lifestyle. Maybe she has been solicited into this lifestyle as making money at it. But generally, I think most of us in the West kind of get the sense that anytime a woman wanted to really step out of that lifestyle, they would have the opportunity to do so. Um, we're talking about something here that when you apply the word slavery to sex trafficking, you, you literally mean women and in some cases children that are pulled into this against their will and literally are, are locked in no different than a slave would be in the traditional sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of deception uh, involved and false lies and promises that are used to lure uh, young woman and, as you've said, children into this industry. But, uh, yeah, make no mistake, it is slavery in the extreme. And uh, one of the first cases I came across was um, in the company of a, a U.S. Special Forces soldier, actually, who uh, was operating in that part of the world, and he uh, liked what we were doing. He said, you know, I'll come along and provide you some security. And I said, that would be great. Uh, absolutely. So he came with me to this uh, location. And the, um, the pimp uh, took us into a, a, a small uh, brothel, and uh, he brought in two 14-year-old girls. Uh, I was recording the transaction with a covert camera. Uh, we paid some cash to uh, return at some future date to have sex with them. And so we were gathering evidence that could be used under local law in that place uh, to re rescue those uh, girls and, and facilitate the prosecution of the perpetrators. Uh, and so this soldier, you know, he looked at me like, okay, you know, are we good to go? And I knew from the intelligence we'd received that there were even younger uh, children available in that place. And so I said, ah, you know, these, these girls are a bit old for me. And this pimp, he, uh, he winked and smiled and he said, wait there, and he disappeared and he came back into the room. And he had two little girls who were about six years old. And uh, they had pigtails and teddy bears on their T-shirts. And uh, this, um, this soldier, he shut down at that point. He went quiet. And uh, nothing, you know, he's a guy that's been there and done that, but nothing had prepared him for uh, two little six-year-old girls being offered to him for 30 US dollars an hour for, for whatever he wanted to do to them, basically. And, uh, you know, at that point I took over. I taught Sunday school in my youth, and I got them to sit on my knee and... Uh, as far as the pimp was concerned, I was the perfect sleaze, but I was getting them up close to the camera, capturing their faces and their names and as much information as I could about where they came from. Uh, and then we, we then paid uh, for some future transaction where, when we would return, and we did return, but we didn't come back with customers, we came back with police, and they, they raided that place, they arrested the perpetrators, and we rescued those kids. You have a background, of course, in uh, police and investigative work. How did you initially get, get pulled into investigating this of uh, the most insidious of crimes? Well, I think right from when I first became a Christian, actually, uh, as a very young man, I, I um, was in my teens doing the 40-hour the famine, uh, as it's called in New Zealand. I think you have a 30-hour famine in the U.S., um, and we were sent the publicity material about what the money was going for that year and it was talking about these children as young as 13 
14 who were selling themselves on the streets and my younger sister was 13 at the time and uh, you know I, I grew up with Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist and so on I, I just thought this was something of an of an age gone by and so to discover that it was more rife than ever in our large cities around the world and uh, I, I prayed a dangerous prayer I guess uh, um, God if you can use me uh, one day to do something about this uh, here I am and uh, I subsequently heard Tony Campolo a uh, motivational speaker talk about a, a program that he and uh, Ron Sider who wrote uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger uh, had put together to train young people basically to go into these places around the world and um, uh, break the poverty, the cycles of poverty and oppression. Uh, and um, after uh, working in the New Zealand police for about 10 or 11 years, I heard about a number of organisations that were then using the skills of um, uh, police officers, investigators, lawyers and so on to get this kind of evidence which was being used to set people free, so I um, seized the opportunity. And of course, in doing so, you've now invested a lifetime, not just in investigating the cases from an undercover investigative standpoint, but also helping to literally capture and and release many of these, uh, both women and children that have been pulled into slavery. Yes, yeah, uh, it was amazing for me. I I went into one brothel and um, the woman lined up as they do, and uh, they were from Korea, Japan, Thailand, uh, Philippines, Latin America, and uh, I chose uh, Jenny, who, who was from Korea, and I uh, took her into the bedroom. I then made up some excuse as to why I wasn't going to have sex with her and just uh, started to talk with her and just ask the questions. So, you know, where are you from? What's your real name? Uh, why, why can't you leave? Why have they got your passport? And who is it that, that receives money from this place? And um, uh, the amazing thing for me was that, um, well, Jenny said she had travelled all the way from Korea. She'd been promised a legitimate job. And uh, when she arrived at the location, her passport was taken, she was raped, and she was told that if she ever tried to leave, uh, not only would she be uh, brutalised further, uh, but her family and her little sister and her little brother back home, she would never see them again. And uh, so often the chains that hold these women are um, chains of terror, and uh, it's, it is organised crime that, um, that in many cases keep them there. The amazing thing for me was that this brothel was not in Southeast Asia. Uh, it was not in Latin America or Eastern Europe. I mean, Jenny was being held captive in, a, in the suburbs of the United States of America. Daniel Walker, our guest, a look at his new book, God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our guest, Daniel Walker. Daniel is an undercover investigator and details his experiences into the insidious, dark, evil world of sex trafficking and slavery in a new book that's been newly published by InterVarsity Press entitled God in a Brothel, An Undercover Journey into Sex Trafficking and Rescue. Daniel, in the years that you have worked to help rescue 
these women, sometimes men, many children, both uh, here in the United States and internationally. What is your perception of the problem? As we talk more about this in a public fashion, as organizations are being created to not only raise awareness, but try to uh, assist uh, police authorities in bringing the criminals responsible for sex sex, uh, trafficking to justice, do you get the impression the situation, well, the problem is getting any better or is it getting worse? No, I think it's getting worse. Uh, Some uh, estimates say that in the next 10 years, the commercial sexual exploitation and sale of women and children will become the number one earner for organized criminal groups, surpassing the sale of drugs. Uh, As you said, a $32 billion U.S. industry at the moment. But unlike uh, drugs, which you you sell once and they're gone, you get a child from when she's five and you sell her multiple times a day until she's in her 20s or gets AIDS and dies. Uh, the, the profits are astronomical, and uh, the penalties are often less for selling women and children than they are for selling drugs. So, uh, no, the, um, this industry is growing, it's booming, and, um, and again, that's why I wrote the book, so that uh, in the hope that people would see what I saw, and in particular that the church would respond as uh, one of uh, the best-positioned organizations in the world. Uh, we're, we're in pretty much every community where this goes on. Uh, in, ver- in very many cases, um, uh, church and parachurch organizations, they know uh, what is going on or at least have people within their community, their faith community. They often have all the assets, all the available skills necessary. There's, there's an investigator, there's a lawyer, a business person, a communications person, and they just need to make that connection between this God who came to set a, a human race free from slavery. You know, it's, it's as old as the Garden of Eden uh, right through to, to Moses leading people out of literal slavery through to the great abolitionists who, uh, who came to set us free from everything that, that sucks the life out of us. And uh, I think at a time when there are more people involved, more people enslaved than ever before, if, if we as the church are silent and not actively engaged, then we cannot say with any credibility that we represent the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who came to set us free. If the church on this topic, Daniel, remains silent, uh, disinterested and distant from the topic, it seems to be something that's ugly, it's vile, it's evil, uh, something that perhaps uh, we'd rather not talk about in so-called polite uh, company. How, how bad is it? Give me a snapshot, if you would, for someone who is hearing this topic discussed frankly and openly, maybe for the first time, and they're staring at dis- in disbelief at their radio receiver right now, thinking, I can't imagine I'm even hearing a conversation about slavery and underage sex trafficking taking place on a Christian radio station. Walk us through the profile of one of the children that you have dealt with and how bad things can get if we don't get engaged, if we don't step in to make a difference? Oh, well, um, I guess uh, I can tell you about a pimp that I met a, a couple of streets away from uh, where Martin Luther King wrote his, um, his uh, famous passages about freedom and, uh, and having a dream for this country, the United States of America, where people would live in, in freedom and uh, it would be a country of justice. And uh, he was a pimp in uh, the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, and he was telling me how easy it is to walk into pretty much any mall in the United States. And he said within a very short space of time, he could identify young girls who were 
vulnerable. Uh, and they came from all walks of life, not just poor and, and uh, uh, girls and boys but, um, or runaways, but also from wealthy families. And he said, uh, I said, how did you do it? You know, I was pretending to be uh, enamored by his ability. And he said, oh, it's easy. I sell dreams. I just sell them dreams that any seduces and enslaves with his, with his sweet-smelling lies, uh, which ultimately, of course, become nightmares. And, um, yeah, as I said uh, earlier, it, it's not just in the brothels and, and back rooms of uh, Southeast Asia, but in the, in the bedrooms, in the, in the uh, massage parlors, in the back uh, rooms of office buildings uh, all across the United States, there are women and children who are being held against their will. And, uh, yeah, I guess um, for those who are wondering whether this is indeed something that the church should be engaged in, um, you know, I guess in, in the United States I hear a lot of talk about being a believer. Uh, and Jesus himself said, you know, that being a believer is not enough. Uh, you know, that so, so what? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Big deal. You know, even, even the demons believe that. Uh, that it's about, uh, you know, he goes on to say religion, as, as it says in James, you know, religion that God our Father accepts as pure is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to rescue orphans and widows in their distress. And in fact, uh, as you know, Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious of his day and said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. And, and throughout the Old and New Testament, he makes it very clear um, that his will is to set people free from whatever enslaves them. And, you know, in the Christian church, we talk about knowing God, and that is indeed the heart of our message, that we are known and that we can know God. And the prophet Jeremiah, uh, 22.16, he defended the cause or rescued the cause of the poor and the oppressed. In other words, he rescued people from slavery. Is that not what it means to know me, says the Lord? So I guess the challenge is, you know, if, if we're not aware of this and we're not somehow engaged, then can we really say that we know him at all? There's a lot of talk about legalization of prostitution, even in San Francisco, um, under our um, former district attorney, Terrence Hallinan. They had gone to simply not enforcing the law, and if the police arrested both prostitutes and or Johns, uh, would drop them down off of the jail. They would be out in less than 24 hours, and the district attorney's office simply did not prosecute, considering this a so-called victimless crime. If, in fact, there is any level of success at the push toward so-called legalization of prostitution, does that somehow make this any better? You know, from my experience, um, well, I, I do want to say that uh, I think it is wrong to criminalize small children, you know, 13, 14 years old, who often end up uh, under the control of a, a pimp who is effectively, a, he's a criminal, he's a slave master. And so often it's these uh, 13 and 14-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls who are being uh, arrested. And um, thankfully there is some great training in law enforcement around the world and in this country uh, to encourage law enforcement officers to look beneath the surface and to ask those questions so that they, um, they do and can identify that actually the people with the power and the people that are making the money out of this crime are, you know, 99% of the time not the, uh, the small girls involved, it's actually the, the pimps, and in some cases the very organized pimps and, and organizations that put them on the street. 
Uh, and of course, it's the men who uh, who prey on them and use them. So if if it has to be criminalised, then then uh, you know law enforcement is slowly moving toward and recognising that they need to criminalise the uh, the buyers and the sellers, not the most vulnerable person in the transaction. Uh, but it, you know what? I've, I've been in countries where it's uh, legal, and where it's illegal, and it largely, um, from my experience, has been irrelevant. In both of those countries, there are still women and children who are forced. It's still exploitation then, no matter how you slice it, even if the government somehow codifies it and says, okay, we're going to look the other way and consider this uh, not to be something that we'll prosecute on, as in the case of San Francisco, or simply legalize it, does not erase or modify the fact that it's still exploitation, am I right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, in Amsterdam, where it's widely known around the world, it's that it's uh, legal. Uh, a huge percentage, um, uh, I was told recently, but it's escaped my memory, but a huge percentage of those women who are on display behind those glass windows in Amsterdam are still victims of human trafficking. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, there is so much division, or can be a huge potential for division when it comes to do we legalise it, do we criminalise it? I guess what I um, have found is that what we can all agree on and what we can, you know, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Conservative, Liberal, we can all sit around the table and agree and work together and agree that women and children should not be forced into this industry and they should not be sold as slaves. And that's something that we can be united about. And whatever end of the political spectrum or whatever our views, uh, you know, we can all get together and agree that in the extreme form, these little five- and six-year-old girls that I have carried out of brothels around the world, uh, that that should not be happening. And even if they're 14, 15, 16-year-old American girls who are under the control of a pimp who has so enslaved them mentally, psychologically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, that they need us to gather around them and to, and to do what we can to set them free. Amen. And that the church should not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to the situation. The book is called God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And its author has been our guest today, undercover investigator Daniel Walker. Daniel, I know it's a tough subject. We appreciate so much the work you've done on behalf of not only bringing uh, the, the perpetrators to justice, but bringing um, hope and eventually release to those victims of all of this. Thanks so much for taking some time to visit with us today. No, thank you. I mean, I, like I said, I think it's something that everyone can get engaged in at some level, and that's the exciting part of it and, and does bring hope. So, no, thanks for having me. Thanks again. Daniel Walker, God in a Brothel, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are reminded that prayer is the key and faith unlocks the door. From that wonderful hymn of the 1970s, wasn't it? Um, Trying to think who sang that. I can picture him right now. Roger, it'll come to me. It's a sign of old age. Roger something or other. Prayer is the key to heaven. Sometimes you get a little overwhelmed, though. Especially if you have a reputation for being a bit of a prayer warrior and you enjoy communing with God, and yet, boy, how do you do it? I, I don't mean how do you pray. What I mean is how can you have a sense? When you say to somebody, for example, I'll be praying for you, 
Are you good on the follow-through? Are you able to keep track of the execution on that? I know I, I have to make a list. If I don't make a list, inevitably, and I try to do it strictly from top of mind, uh, you run into somebody and they say, gee, uh, my son-in-law is dealing with cancer. Oh, I'll be sure and pray. I'll add them to my prayer list. And then a day or two goes by and you forget about it. And then six weeks later, you run into them somewhere at the grocery store and they say, gee, my son-in-law is doing much better. Thank you for praying. And you go, oh, my goodness, I had completely forgotten. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And yet, is there a practical way in which you can pray for friends, family, community? Well, my next guest says, absolutely, yes. Simply learn to pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Amelia Rhodes joins us. And Amelia, what a brilliant book. Uh, When I first saw this come across my desk, I thought, oh, another book on how to pray. Well, there's plenty of those out there. But then I started thumbing through and went, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole new idea. Thank you. Yeah, that um, that's kind of how I felt. We don't need another book on how to pray. We need something that will actually help us to pray, because I'm, much like you described, that has been my struggle, too, saying I would pray for people, and then weeks later realizing, wow, I only prayed once, maybe twice, and just feeling this conviction that I needed to follow through and be faithful long term. And as and, and we talk about uh, lending the sense of of organization. I, I know some people might shudder a little bit and think, oh, my goodness, I have to get an Excel, Excel spreadsheet going now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I got to go buy a laptop so I have it Ooh. handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, know, I know that I need simple things that help me. And that's how Pray A to Z started for me was just out of my own prayer life feeling very overwhelmed and convicted of, you know, running into people later and remembering, oh, I, I said I was going to pray long term. And uh, so I just came up with this very simple way. And it started out, you know, note cards, three by five cards, and it grew into a book. I never would have dreamt I would write a book on prayer because I felt like I was the least qualified person to do that. <laughs> As you've approached this, you're, you're taking it very um, topical in a sense. And I guess it's true that People tend to, at least my life experiences, tend to fit in, you know, not, not, not neat, clean pigeonholes, but it tends to be, for example, there's a couple of people on my prayer list right now that are dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. So they're in the cancer category. Mm-hmm. And then it seems perennially there is somebody that I know that's got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild that's kind of wandered away from the Lord and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe they've had a run-in with the law and things of that sort. So that it seems as if... Uh, um, the older we get, the health concerns, of course, tend to pile up. But it seems as if there are certain perennial categories that, that that tend to be kind of repetitive. The names may change, but the needs are kind of the same. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And that's how it started for me. It was after taking several phone calls and emails from friends all in one day, big, heavy requests, adoptions that weren't going well, cancer diagnosis, um, a marriage that was falling apart, when I realized, you know, this is heavy and overwhelming, and I asked God to help me be more faithful in my prayer life, and that was what I, the conclusion I came to, that so many people were struggling with the same types of things. What if I were to pray by category and maybe take one or two per day? 
And so that's how A became adoptions and B became bullying. And then we expanded doing several topics per letter. And I found it, um, I kept the topics broad enough so that, yes, under cancer, you will remember your friends, their family members, their caregivers, their hospital staff caring for them, really just very broadly covering all of those struggling with the various topics. And uh, let's see, 26 letters in the alphabet that kind of takes us through um, A to Z literally over the course of a month. Right, right. And I ended up starting with one topic per letter, and then I ended up expanding it to five. So there are 150 different prayers and topics in the book, and um, two for each letter are actually prayers of praise. Yeah, I noticed that. And and was it intentional that you included that in there? Because, you know, so often we think about, uh, you know, the, the Scripture talks about going to, and bringing to the Lord our prayers and supplications, and it tends to usually be a laundry list of Heavenly Father, I need, right. so-and-so needs, the other one needs, and it's, it's typically uh, all very one-way communication in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we could almost, uh, if, if, if heaven had an email address... <laughs> <laughs> we would we would do that and just say you know dear God here's my list uh, get right. back to me when it, when you've answered all those requests right. you're, you're you're suggesting a dynamic here that that really helps to not only give us a better sense of discipline about our prayer but also helps to enrich our relationship with God absolutely because as I prayed you know and I was we're looking at you know very heavy topics that we're all facing in our communities. We've mentioned cancer, but then like praying for the homeless and those who are serving them, um, zero prejudice, uh, our lawmakers, all of those big things happening in our communities. It can be very heavy, and I found myself, even in prayer, just feeling just this darkness and feeling overwhelmed. But when I began to praise God and recognizing who it is that I'm talking to, it really lightens the load because we remember that every need we have is met in who He is. And it was very exciting as I wrote it. So, for example, like C was cancer and caregivers, and then praising God that he's the comforter. How very often, you know, these prayers of praise match up with the needs and recognizing, yes, we have these hard and heavy things, but remember, he's almighty, he's the comforter, he's our helper. There's also another dynamic to this that fascinates me, and I and I think it's one, you know, a, a, some people that kind of approach prayer casually uh, do it. They know they need to do it. They have a sense that it moves the hand of God, so they're obedient in that fashion. But there's lacking any sense of organization. It's easy to rack up the list of all the prayer needs mm-hmm. and then forget about the times, and they are frequent, when God answers prayer. And I'm wondering if in this fashion, in, in giving a greater sense of organization to uh, how you pray and remembering to, to remember all the needs that are brought forward, is it also a tool in helping you keep track of, wow, when God answers prayer, let's make note of that too, and right. also give thanks to the Lord in acknowledging the fact that here's another case where he's answered prayer. Absolutely. With with each topic, I started out with a scripture, because I, I really believe in starting with God's Word. What does God say about this topic and this particular issue? And then in the prayer prompt, just a couple sentences, you know, remembering all of the people who are going through this. And then many times I prompted people, you know, think about the times where God has moved in your life in this area and give thanks for that. And then through the prayers, um, to not only think about the current situations, but situations in past, praising God for his faithfulness and how he has worked in these areas. 
And I think a lot of that helps to to not only give us a greater sense of discipline when it comes to our prayer, but, but also does a phenomenal job in strengthening our relationship and our faith. Right, and that is my hope through all of this. That, you know, often if we don't know where to go or we feel like we're just, you know, in a rut with the same things over and over, that it will it will expand our love for God and our love for our community and that we will begin to experience this deepening relationship with Him as we begin to talk to Him intentionally and purposely, you know, every day. I, <clears throat> funny, I was just looking at the calendar here and, and made note of the fact that it's December the 14th. Exactly a year ago today, I was flat on my back in a hospital being treated for cancer mm. and had suffered something called an ileus. I won't describe it. It's a blockage. Oh. Um, as, as I told my nurse, uh, it'll be about three hours from now, exactly a year ago, uh, you need to either give me some pain medication or bring me a gun. Mm. Horrifically painful experience. Right. And as we're talking... And I'm thinking back exactly a calendar year later at the repeated answers to prayer, including on the day of the most painful day of my hospitalization, exactly a year ago today. And I think how grateful I am to serve a God who not only hears prayer, but who answers prayer, Mm -hmm. and to be mindful and reminded of his faithfulness. And I think we do a good job in bringing those prayers and supplications to the Lord, I think, uh, quite often. But um, the discipline to keep track of all the times that he answers prayer, the miraculous fashion in which he is there with us. Sometimes we kind of give mental assent to that. But I think actually writing it down and saying, well, we prayed for Uncle Charlie starting on this date and X number of days, weeks, whatever later, here's the date when God answered the prayer. This can be a wonderful resource, too. The book is simply called Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. That's Pray A to Z, and uh, newly published by a Worthy Inspired. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through the uh, usual suspects like Amazon.com. It's a good read and uh, gives you some great tips. Our thanks to Amelia Rhodes, author of Pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.